And the Lord spoke unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. My subject today is what God calls a new year. What God calls a new year. God bless you. You may be seated. I guess one way to look at it is it, it all started with the fulfillment of a dream. In Genesis 42 and verse 9, it says, And Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed of them. According to Genesis 37 and verse 2, Joseph was 17 years old when he was sold by his brothers to a slave merchant on his way to Africa. I know in Genesis 41 and 46 that he was 30 years old when he finally stood in front of Pharaoh and gave the interpretation of the dream that had so troubled this king. And if you're a student of the Bible, you know what the dream was. Seven fat cows came out of the river, followed by seven skinny cows, and the seven skinny cows ate up the seven fat cows. That wasn't all that he dreamed. He He had another dream of seven different good things and seven terrible things. Joseph helped him understand. You're going to have seven years of blessing and plenty in your farms. But then there's going to come a famine that's going to be worldwide. And that famine is going to last for seven years. It's obvious when you read Chapter 45 and verse 6. Joseph unveiled himself and revealed himself to his brothers in the second year of the famine. So if he was 30 years old when he told Pharaoh what was about to happen, then he had to be 39 years old when he revealed himself to his brothers. I've been in prisons through the years, been in a lot of jails, but I've been in some very, very terrible prisons in my travels. I uh, was preaching in Tennessee one time when a lady just came in that nobody knew and received the Holy Ghost. She was the wife of James Earl Ray, who was accused of of killing Martin Luther King. And of course, she swore that he didn't do it. And uh, James Earl Ray was uh, just a pretty much a common street thief. 
So my question was, how in the world did they catch James Earl Ray in London, England, with all of that money? No one else was ever charged. They blamed it all on him. Several years later, I met a man who was involved in the prison ministry of the United Pentecostal Church. He had spent six years in a cell with James Earl Ray. And I asked him, did he do it or not? I'll never forget what he told me. He said, Brother Hoffman, there's truth behind the bars. And he said, uh, James Earl Ray didn't shoot Martin Luther King. And then he said something I'll never forget. He said, you have to learn to throw away hope when you go to prison for life. Because hope will kill you when there's no possible chance of what you're hoping for to be realized. So I wondered, when, when did he forget? When, when did he lose it? What is, was it on the trip to Egypt, chained to who knows how many other poor souls on their way to a slave auction in Egypt? Or was it the time spent as a slave in a wealthy Egyptian's home by the name of Potiphar? And just when you think it couldn't get any worse than being a slave... Joseph ends up in prison probably for the rest of his life on a trumped-up rape charge. I suppose it is a combination of those things that had thoroughly stomped out any hope in his heart that he would ever catch a break. Twelve years of dream-crushing setbacks followed by a miraculous series of events that literally promoted him overnight from the prison to prime minister. He made the transition. Egypt was his home now. He had resigned himself after all of the ill luck and terrible things that had happened to him. I'm, I'm going to take advantage of my good fortune and I'm going to milk this one for all it's worth. And so as he gazed over that room that day, crowded full of men with their hat in their hands, all there for the very same reason, we're hungry and you have the only grocery store in the world. I don't know when exactly it happened, but he saw him. When those 10 men walked in the back of that room that day, Judah, you've gotten gray since I saw you last. Reuben, I would know you anywhere. The awareness came on him. His heart rate begins to rise. It's them, all 10 of them. And then it happens. 
He remembers the dream. He knew that when their number was called, they're going to come up here and they're going to bow down in front of me. Just like those bending sheaves and those orbiting stars that I saw years ago. He would unveil himself in front of them. Their knees would shake as they realized the man they had convinced their dad was dead was in fact sitting in front of them right now and he had (coughs) all of their tomorrows in his hand. And in what to me is the greatest act of forgiveness that would only be eclipsed by the last words of Jesus on the cross. Joseph said to those brothers who had sold him, you thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good. To bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. I've always smiled when I've read this verse. It's in Genesis 47. And Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and set him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. First question Joseph asked his brothers, is daddy still alive? Yep. He don't walk very fast right now, and he's had both of his knees replaced. His hips are in trouble. He's got arthritis. He doesn't hear real good. Miracle ear sends him something in the mail every week. But he's still alive, Joseph. You go get daddy and everybody else and you bring them down here. And it was with great pride that Joseph presented his dad to the king ruled the greatest nation in the world at that time. Boy, would I have enjoyed being there and listened to that conversation between Joseph's dad and Pharaoh. That boy yours is something else. You know, the locals have a nickname for him. They call him the savior of the world. I couldn't have pulled this off without your boy. It all started out so good. The favor of the Pharaoh himself. Jacob getting to meet two grandsons that he didn't even know existed. The best farmland you could ever ask for. The best farmland probably in the world. The fertile crescent of the Nile River. Bible said in Exodus 1 and verse 5, it all started out with 70 souls. There's a little scrap of information that you'll find in Galatians chapter 3. It says that they were there in Egypt for 430 years. Everything was good until it says... There arose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. 300 years. It just stuns me. This nation is not 300 years old. 
How many people remember George Washington? Well, all the the foolish woke. I can't get sidetracked with that. You can't change history, ladies and gentlemen. You can study it. You can hate it. You can love it. But it's there. You can't change it. What kind of life do you live that for 300 years after you're dead, you're still influencing national policy? Joseph was an amazing, amazing man. But after 300 years, finally, there got to be a Pharaoh who never met Joseph, had no idea who Joseph was, could care less. It always fascinated me because it says there's more of them than there are of us. If they ever come to the awareness of who they are and what they're capable of, they literally can overthrow us. That's not what Israel said about Egypt. That's what Pharaoh said about Israel. Ladies and gentlemen, if the church ever figures out who they really are, if they ever come to the understanding, I remember being in India years ago seeing a massive elephant tied with something based that wasn't even what my mom would call clothesline material. It was just a simple little braided string, really. I asked that guy, how in the world could you chain up an elephant with that tiny little string? And he said, we start when they're young. And he said, they try and try and try to get away. But after a while, they just accept it. And so now we can chain up a massive elephant with a tiny little string because he gave up. Just come to the understanding, I'll never get loose. If the church ever gets the revelation of who she really is, we can throw off the restraint and we can have a harvest and a victory unparalleled in the history of the work of God. Oh, Jesus. 150 years of slavery. That's three generations at least. You're a slave. Your dad was a slave. Your grandpa was a slave. But all that starts changing in Exodus 11 and 12 in something known as the plagues. Exodus 12 is the final plague, the death of the firstborn. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment because I'm the Lord. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague 
shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. Watch. And this day shall be unto you for a memorial and you shall keep it a feast to the Lord through your generations. You shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. I will try. I don't mean to confuse you, but you're going to have to follow me for the next 15 minutes because you have to understand the future ramifications that these events preview. This thing known as the Passover is a big deal. There are seven feasts of Jehovah mentioned in the 23rd chapter of Leviticus. Here are the first three. In the 14th day of the first month at evening is the Lord's Passover. Verse six is the very next feast. And on the 15th day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread unto the Lord. Seven days you have to eat unleavened bread. Verse 10 says, speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, when you come into the land which I give unto you and shall reap the harvest thereof, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest unto the priest. These are the three the first three feasts in the seven. Feast number one was known as Passover, celebrated on the 14th day of the first month. The second feast was known as unleavened bread, celebrated on the day after Passover. The third feast is known as first fruits. It begins on the day after unleavened bread. Three feasts in succession. 14th is Passover. 15th is unleavened bread. 16th is first fruits. This is what makes 1 Corinthians 5 and 7, one of the reasons it makes 5 and 7 so powerful to me. Purge out therefore the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you are unleavened. For even Christ... Our Passover is sacrificed for us. When you read the letter to the Corinthian church, in 15 and 20, Paul said, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. But every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and afterward, they that are Christ at his coming. These are words that mean nothing to you if you aren't familiar with the feast. When you call Jesus Passover, that's a big deal. When you call Jesus first fruits, you have to go all the way back to those feasts in Leviticus and back to the events of that night that they left Egypt to understand what's going on here. I found something that fascinated me this week in study. Joshua has taken the people across the Jordan. And it it says, And the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at even in the plains of Jericho. The next verse says, And 
They did eat of the old corn of the land on the morrow after the Passover. Unleavened cakes, parched corn in the selfsame day. But look at verse 16. And the manna ceased on the morrow after they had eaten of the old corn of the land. Neither had the children of Israel manna anymore, but they did eat of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. Here they are in succession again. 14th Passover, 15th unleavened bread, 16th first fruits. I've asked people for years, asking them, let's let's use scripture to explain scripture. In other words, I I don't want to hear what you heard on Christian television. I, I I I don't want you to repeat to me something that you found on some obscure website. I'm not asking you to tell me what your pastor taught or what your priest taught or what, no. Let's just use Bible to explain Bible. Is there a place in the Bible that actually tells us what the gospel is? And the answer is obvious. It's in Corinthians 15. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you which also you have received and wherein you stand, by which also you are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, and that he was buried And that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. What is the gospel in the Bible? Death, burial, resurrection. That's the gospel. And it's vitally important when you read this verse. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation. To everyone that believes, we'll start with the Jews and then we'll get to the Gentiles. Ladies and gentlemen, if you want to be saved, you must obey the gospel. Because the gospel is the power to save you. This is more than a mental assent and a simple acceptance of historical events. Do you believe there is a God? Do you believe his name is Jesus? Do you believe he died for your sins? This is about obedience. We must do more than simply agree that he died and he rose again on the third day. We must be willing to enter into a covenant relationship that identifies him as our Lord and we as his servants. Because Jesus taught in John chapter 15, the servant is never greater than the Lord. No wonder he also said in Matthew 7 and verse 22, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? If you read on later, he'll say, depart from me. I don't even know who you are. Even though they said, Lord, Lord, 
Because in Luke 6 and verse 46, Jesus said, Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? It's very simple. You can't call him Lord if you aren't willing to obey what he asks you to do. We're supposed to be his servants. And no servant is exempt from the actions and requests of their Lord. In other words, if he did it, we need to do it. If he asks for it, we need to obey it. He died, we must die. He was buried, we must be buried. He resurrected, we must be resurrected. Thus you will find verses like this in Acts 17 and verse 30. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now, now, God commands all men everywhere to repent. That's dying out to yourself, ladies and gentlemen. If you identify with his death through repentance, Jesus didn't just die on the cross. They put him in the grave. We need to identify with his burial. According to Romans 6 and 4, we are buried with him by baptism. Jesus was not just dead and buried, but resurrected from the grave. Therefore, in Romans 8 and 11, it says, If the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead is going to raise you up from the dead. Quicken your mortal body by his spirit that dwelleth in you. How do you identify with the death of Jesus Christ on the cross? By repenting. How do you identify with his burial? By being baptized in water in his name. How do you identify with his resurrection? Filled with the Holy Spirit. So filled that it literally burglarizes your speech. And you magnify your creator in a language you don't know. But he understands perfectly. That's power, ladies and gentlemen. That's real power. That's a real transformation. It's what the Bible calls a new birth. Rise to walk in newness of life, it says. What I'm trying to show you is that this thing begins with Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits. Jesus is called our Passover. John the Baptist introduced Jesus as the lamb that taketh away the sin of the world. Just as the blood of that lamb in the Old Testament was splashed on your house and specifically on your door and he would pass over you. That's what repentance does. That's what Passover is. Passover is the picture of the death of the lamb, which you and I identify with through our repentance. Unleavened bread, no leaven, no yeast, nothing is risen. That's why Jesus can't resurrect on the day after he dies, because he said, destroy this temple, and in three days, not two, three days, I will raise it up. As Jonah was three days in the belly of the whale, 
so shall the Son of Man be three days in the heart of the earth. The 14th is Passover. The next day is the grave. The next day is the burial. The next day is unleavened bread. Nothing's risen. Nothing rises on the day after Calvary. That's why the third day is so powerful. Because Paul literally refers to him as the first fruits of them that slapped. Because first fruits in the Old Testament was the feast that commemorated the greatest jailbreak in the history of the world to that point. But when you get to Jesus coming out of the grave by his own power, that eclipses every jailbreak there's ever been. What I'm trying to show you is those three feasts in the Old Testament, a Passover on 14, unleavened bread on 15, first fruits on 16, are fulfilled in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And not only are they fulfilled in Jesus, they are fulfilled in the church that when we identify with his dying through our repentance and we identify with his burial through our baptism and we identify with his resurrection by being filled with the Holy Spirit, it makes that old New Testament come together, man. It's dovetails. Bible says it fitly framed together. What fascinates me is, is that the whole thing begins with Passover. And if you know your Bible, and you know even today, if you've ever been around an Orthodox, you know, you get in business and they have, there's a calendar year and then there's a business year. It's not the same thing, man. And when you deal with Orthodox Jews, January don't mean that much to an Orthodox Jew. But when you get into the spring of the year, what we would call Abib or April, March sometimes, depending on the calendar. I'm telling you that up until Exodus 12, <laughs> that was the fourth month of the year. But he said, when you get into Canaan and you celebrate this feast, it's not going to be April. This month, which has previously been your fourth month, is now going to be the first month of the year. In other words, in the eyes of the Lord, the year begins when you repent. That's what God calls a new year. Repentance is so powerful. There's a scripture in Luke 15 where Jesus taught, and of course he would know. He said, angels rejoice when somebody repents. <laughs> How many angels are there anyway? The Bible in Hebrews calls it an innumerable company of angels. I've tried in attempts before to try and show you how many I think there are. But that's just me. Hebrews said, you can't number them. Satan can't create demons. Demons are nothing more than fallen angels. But we serve the creator. He can make more. He can make more. He can make more. You understand, angels never die. There's someone possibly in this room this year. 
You were in the worst trial of your life. And the very angel that kicked Simon Peter while he was sleeping in prison. That's how worried he was in prison. He went to sleep. The angel kicked him and said, let's go, boy. We're getting out of here. You may have been in a fiery furnace, but the very angel that turned the trio into a quartet, (laughs) Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I heard Flip Wilson years ago preaching. He said, you know them three big, them three Hebrew boys in the furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and a big Negro. That's what he said. (laughs) Ever been in a fiery furnace? They never saw the fourth one. But he was there. Is it possible that this year, the very same angel that was with them boys in that fire was with you? Is it possible that the very same angel that was with Daniel in the lion's den was with you. Wow. (laughs) Paul one time said, there stood by me this night the angel of the Lord. He didn't stop the shipwreck, but he was with me and kept me floating all night long. A night and a day, he said, we treaded water in the deep. I've heard people say for years, the will of God is the most important thing. No, it's not. No, it's not. And I'll prove it to you. Because the Bible says in the book of Peter, it's not his will that any should perish. But a lot of them are. It's not his will that any should perish. This is his will. That all should come to repentance. Look at Nineveh. God saw their works. You've got to understand. <laughs> Jonah hates Nineveh. Hates them. God saw their works. That they turned from their evil way. And God repented of the evil that he had said he would do unto them. And he did it not. Matthew or Brian, you can find this verse. It's in the end of the book of Jonah. If you know the story of Jonah, Jonah got so depressed when God forgave that city. The king fasted, families fasted, the babies fasted, even the animals, the dogs, the cats, and the cows fasted. And God heard their prayer. Jonah got so depressed, he went and found a shade tree. And all the leaves in the shade tree shriveled up and dried. And he's just sitting there baking in the sun. And this is what he, and God's questioned him, what are you so depressed about? And he said this, I knew. I knew. If I preached repentance to them people and they obeyed, I knew you'd forgive them. Hallelujah. Bible says in the book of Matthew, the men of Nineveh 
will rise in judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, a greater than Jonah is here. How long does it take to repent anyway? Let me tell you about a man named David who had an affair with his best friend's wife. She got pregnant. He saw to it that his best friend died in order to cover up his affair. He's an adulterer and he's a murderer. And a prophet by the name of Nathan confronts him and says, you're the thief. You're the thief. Listen to what David does in 2 Samuel 12 and 13. And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. (coughs) And Nathan said unto David, The Lord hath put away thy sin, and thou shalt not die. You want to know how long it takes to repent? David did it in one verse. Because man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. It doesn't take a lot of words if you really mean them. You don't have to be around this altar for days and days and days and do all kinds of penance and jump through all kinds of hoops. If you really mean it, God's got a meter. And that thing goes, whew. This time they mean it. This time it's for real. See, there's two things in the Old Testament that there was no sacrifice for. You get into those commandments and if you lied, you could offer a sacrifice for that. If you lusted, you you could offer a sacrifice for that. You dishonored your mom and dad or you stole something, you could offer a sacrifice for that. But there was no sacrifice for murder. And there was no sacrifice for adultery. And that explains this verse in Psalms 51, known as David's prayer of repentance after Nathan confronted him. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else I would give it. If I could have offered some kind of animal and that would have got my forgiveness, I would have done it. But you know and I know there's no sacrifice for what I did. But the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou will not despise. If I could have sacrificed something else or someone else, but that's not going to fix it. I'm going to have to sacrifice myself. I'm going to have to put my will on the altar. Look with new eyes with me for a moment at the ministry of Jesus. Nobody got the Holy Ghost while Jesus was preaching. With the exception of his 12, he didn't baptize anybody else. What was the ministry of Jesus? What did he do in those three and a half years? He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He delivered the oppressed. He showed mercy to a woman 
still buttoning up her blouse as they drug her in front of him. The woman that's been divorced five times and now shacking up with number six at the well. I'm telling you the ministry of Jesus was not a ministry of baptism in his name nor people being filled with his spirit. But his ministry was one of healing, miracles, deliverance, and mercy. No wonder it says at the beginning of his ministry in Matthew 9, two blind men followed him and said, Jesus, watch, thou son of David, have mercy on me. (laughs) So did the Gentile woman, not even a Jew, pleading for her daughter's healing. Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. I read to you from Matthew 9, which is the beginning of his ministry. But now I read to you from Matthew 20, which is at the end of the ministry, which tells me it's another duet. Two more blind guys. It says in 20 and 31, and the multitude rebuked him or rebuked them. These, these, these blind guys are screaming. What are they screaming? Have mercy on us, O Lord, thou son of David. They tried to shut him up. So what did they do? They screamed even louder. Do you understand what I'm saying to you right now? There are only a few select times in the New Testament when that phrase is used, son of David. The only one that could be called the son of David was Messiah. So when they said Jesus, son of David, they're not just saying, hey, you, 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 the guy from Nazareth. They're not, they're not, they don't just know his name. They know his identity. They know who he is. He's Messiah. (laughs) He's Savior. Don't you get it? When the enemy tries to shut, I'm telling you in this time, The enemy's going to do everything they can to try and stifle the message of the mighty God in Christ. Our response has got to be the same. We got to preach it louder. We got to shout it louder and longer. Jesus, I don't just know your name. I know who you are. (laughs) Hallelujah. Two blind men at the beginning, two blind men at the end. This is why Bartimaeus in Mark 10, see, Jesus is on his way coming out of Jericho. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He's never coming back. Bartimaeus, Bar means son of, Timaeus means blind man. Bartimaeus is second generation blind. They're used to blind guys in that family. The boy's blind, daddy's blind. But Bartimaeus said, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. What does it say? It said the crowd, even his disciples, tried to get him to shut up. But he had learned from the blind guys. Don't stop now. And he cried even yet the more, saying, Jesus, thou son of David, Have mercy on me. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? Look, I'm almost done. Look, Look at how the ministry of Jesus begins. How does it begin? It's in Luke chapter four. In Luke chapter four, Jesus reads Isaiah 61, which is about the year of Jubilee. Every 50 years, people got their form back. 
Every day of the year, somebody got something back that they had lost 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 30 years ago, 49 years ago. The whole year was a time of celebration. Hey, hey man, hey Mike, man, I'm really glad to see you got the farm back. And he said, Harold, your, your, your day's coming in two weeks. You know, in two weeks, that's your day. You lost it three years after I lost mine, but this is Jubilee year. And every day of the year, on that day that you lost the farm, you got back something that you thought you would never, ever have in your possession again. Jesus said, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. You know what he's saying? You're never going to have to wait 50 years again for Jubilee. I'm Jubilee. I'm setting you free. You're never going to have to wait again to get back what you lost. That's how his ministry began. Look how his ministry ended. The Bible calls him our great high priest. If you know the Old Testament, there are six cities of refuge. And if you committed manslaughter, you could run to a city of refuge and you had one of two ways out. If you could get two or three witnesses to stand up for you and prove your innocence, you'd get exonerated and delivered. But if you couldn't find two or three eyewitnesses that you really didn't mean to harm anybody, you had to wait for the death of the high priest. And when the high priest died, everybody confined in those six cities of refuge got to go home for Thanksgiving, got to go home for Christmas dinner. I've had a great week this week. My kids came from Texas. We were all there. Mother was there. Renee and I and Ashley and Brittany and Josh and Cameron and Parker. And I, it's, it's the second Christmas we've ever had without daddy, but 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 it was just so good to to have all my kids around and my mom still alive and and I think of people who had been in a city of refuge for God knows how long but all of a sudden you know it's like the Catholics right now you know Benedict just died it's just, it's it's very similar it's like guess what the high priest checked out last night are you kidding no sooner do they say that and they're packing their Samsonite man because they're going back home to be with their family you know what I'm trying to show you you, the ministry of Jesus began with freedom. The ministry of Jesus began with restoration. I tell you, the same way it began is the same way it ended. He freed people when he died. When the high priest died, he freed them. Not only did his ministry begin with freedom and end with freedom, I'm telling you all the way through the thing, it was freedom, emancipation, restoration, deliverance. So listen as I close. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. Give me my verse up here, scripture man. Romans 8 and 28. To them who are called according to it doesn't say that. It says, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the, the called according to to his purpose. Hallelujah. You get what I'm saying. We don't want A. We want V. I don't want A revival. I'm praying for the revival. I, I, I don't want A harvest. I, I'm believing for the harvest. Uh, I'll tell you why. Because we are not called. We are the called. Your decoy. So, all of you listening to me on this live stream, 
I believe a quarter of a million dollars will be given to Imagine from the people who aren't in this building on a Sunday, but who watch us from various places around the country and around the world. A dime of it doesn't go in my pocket. I'm asking you to stand with us. I'm asking you to sacrifice with us. I believe that. Why? Because the Bible said there's the former rain and there's the latter rain. But he said, in that day, I'm going to give you the rain. I'm going to give you the former and the latter together. I'm going to give you a gutter washer. I'm going to give you an outpouring like no one in this world has ever known. That's why we're coming again tomorrow night. And we're going to do it again and again. I can't imagine the things that are going to be straightened and changed because of our days of fasting. There are some things that don't come out except you pray and fast. People that don't pray and fast, I'm not saying they can't be saved, but I am saying that there are things that are forever excluded from their lives. They'll never see those kind of ministries. They'll never see those kind of miracles. They'll never see those kids change. They'll never see that story change. They'll never see it. But people that fast and pray, this kind that we're dealing with right now, it will go out with prayer and fasting. And that's why this is your chance. This is your shot. Don't be lost because of your pride. Don't be lost because of your stubbornness. The Bible said rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft. And I'll tell you why. Because you worship your own will. Repent. This is the first day of the year. I don't care what the calendar says. I care what the Christ says. When does he say a new year begins? Passover. Putting that blood on your life. Real, true, genuine, heartfelt repentance. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. Solomon called himself the preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes. I personally think he was a backslid preacher because this is what he said. There's nothing new under the sun. It's all vanity. Boy, was he wrong. (laughs) There was a new king coming. And that new king was going to have a new message and a new covenant. He said, this is the New Testament given to you in my blood. And you'll get what Ezekiel called a new heart and a new spirit. And you'll speak with new tongues. (laughs) Making what Paul called a new man. Gives you a new life. That's why the Bible said you're going to sing unto him a a new song. A new and living way. Going to a new Jerusalem. Where he's going to write upon you a new name. And there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And no wonder at the end of the Bible it simply says, Behold, I make all things new.
Go get, go get your children from the nursery. Hey, let's, let's do this as a family. I'm, I'm not here to build up a, a straw man and tear somebody else apart. You don't get a positive response from a negative base. I'm not here to beat up somebody else's religion to promote mine. I just know there are people that do this thing week after week after week. I'm sure not to all of them, but to many of them, it's just mundane and they just take it for granted. We, we try to be very careful about this communion thing because it's a big deal. It's a big deal. Ah, oh, Jesus. Am I preaching to somebody right now? You got secret sackcloth in your life. Am I preaching to somebody right now that your wife doesn't know what you're doing, sir? Your husband doesn't know what you're doing, ma'am. Son, you think you've you fooled your mom and dad. You think you're doing it and they don't know. Let me give you a Bible verse. A bird of the air will carry it to them. I'll tell you what the Bible said. You do it in secret without repentance long enough. It's going to be revealed openly. But you got a, you got a chance right now. You got a relationship that you shouldn't have. Is there a non-growth relationship in your life? Sir, do you have a, a friend that you tell your wife, ah, oh, there's nothing to it. She's just my friend. Ma'am, do you tell your husband, there's nothing to this? Am I preaching to somebody right now that's got a pornography problem? Yes, I am. Am I preaching to someone right now that's got a problem telling the truth? Probably. But right now, <laughs> right now, in this magic moment, we have the ability to pray a real prayer of repentance. It doesn't take long. It's just got to be real. The Bible doesn't say he'll save you in your sin. It said he'll save you from your sin. Which means run. <laughs> run for your life. I got teenagers in this room right now. I can put my finger on your nose. You're in real trouble. You got your mom and dad scared to death. You got your pastor terrified. You think you know more than we do. You think it's not going to happen to you. You see this lack of hair on the top of my head and this gray hair on the side. I've been down this road a time or two. I'm begging you as your pastor. I'm begging you right now. You got a habit you need to stop. You got a hobby that's stealing your joy. You got something that's burglarizing, amen, your hope. Do you have a secret sin in your life that every time it seems like you're just about to break over into a new covenant with the Lord, that old thing pops up again like whack-a-mole at Chuck E. Cheese. 
and shows its ugly head only for the enemy to to torment you and say, see there, you're never going to get out of my clutches. You're never going to get out of my control. Rome, 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 Rome. This is what the Lord calls a new day. A new day. It's a little complicated. You got to do it with your fingernail. But if you bend that thing down, there's a little piece of clear plastic on the top of this. If you peel it off, there's a little wafer underneath of that. Will you stand with me now? Amen. Don't open the other just yet. We got to do the most important part. We got to repent right now. Lord Jesus, I'm sorry. I really am. My wife thinks she knows me. My mom thinks she knows me. My dad thought he knew me. Nobody knows you like you. You do. Your word says, I don't even know my own heart. I don't even know what that heart of mine is capable of. There are hundreds of thousands of people in prisons in this country who in their craziest, craziest moments never believed they would be the one that did what they did. But I know there's something called cords of sin. Cords. I know that Delilah's barbershop is still open. And I know she'll wrap one thing around us and we'll break it and we'll wrap another thing around us and we'll break it. But if we stay in that barbershop too long, Sooner or later, the enemy's going to wrap one too many strands around our spirit. We're not going to get free. Oh, Jesus. I can't do this without you. I, I can't do this without you. I can't be the husband I need to be. I can't be the daddy I need to be. I can't be the son I'm supposed to. I can't be the, the brother. I can't be the pastor. I I. I can't do this without your help. I'm asking you humbly, Lord, to hear my prayer of repentance. And I don't want to live in such pride and arrogance and be so caught up in my image that I think, no, I could never admit to that. People would think less of me. What matters is what do you think of me, God? How do you view us right now? There are no secrets with you, Lord. You know what lodges in my mind. You know what comes out of my mouth. You know my habits, my hobbies, my pastimes. You know what I'm like when no one else is there. You know what I'm like when I'm in the dark. I'm asking you, God, right now. I want this to be a legitimate re-year of renewal and repentance and restoration. I want to be thee called. I want to see the revival in the church. I want to see the harvest of the lost. Forgive me, Lord. I've had words come out of my mouth that are so far beneath the dignity of someone who would dare call themselves a child of God. You said sweet water and bitter water can never come out of the same well, but they've come out of my mouth. I've allowed things to lodge in my spirit, God, that were wrong. I got mad at people that I should have not got mad at. I've had attitudes inside of me, Lord, that are so far beneath love and joy and long-suffering and gentleness. Goodness, mercy. 
Shepherd's got to lead these sheep right now. Preacher's got to lead the people. We repent before you right now, Lord Jesus. Oh, God. What good's a new building going to do if we don't have a new consecration in our lives? We'll have a name that we're alive, but we're really dead. You said, I try. I ask you to gold tried in the fire. Laodicea, you're famous for your eyes, Sav. Now get some of that and lay it on your eyes and let the eyes of your understanding be in light. Lord Jesus, I make a covenant today in this room. I'm going to be the man I've always wanted to be, but as of yet, I have never been. I'm going to be the woman that I know you called me to be and as of now, I've never been that woman. I'm going to be the husband that I know in my heart I can be. The kind, sacrificing husband that I know I can be. Lord, I'm going to be the meek, submitted wife that I know that I can be. Lord, I'm going to be the obedient son and the obedient daughter. And I know in my heart you called me to be. And Lord, we're going to be the praying, sacrificing and worshiping church that you've called us. We're not a great church. We're a good church. We're not a great church. I'm asking you, God, this this communion service, this day, is the watershed mark in our lives. I'm never going back to who I used to be. Hear my prayer. Accept my forgiveness and my, my repentance. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would with me to take this, it's just a simple wafer, but this is an ancient rite that we're going through right now. Jesus did this with his disciples. This is my body, which is broken for you. Take this cup. Peel that second thing back. Put that in your mouth, if you would, with that wafer. In Jesus' name. Jesus' name. Daddy, if you can, put your hand on your wife. Put your hand on your kids. Come with me around this altar. If your dad's not here, I'm asking somebody else in this church, join yourself to someone else. Got a lot of teachers, not a lot of fathers. Is there someone in this church that you respect? Is there someone in this church that you know, you know, they're righteous men and they're righteous women? Go get by that man. Go get by that woman. Everybody should be a part, not just of this church family, but of a 
Real families around this altar right now. Let's have an adoption ceremony, a real fast one right now. I need you to adopt some kids right now into the safety of your family. In Jesus' name. (laughs) Now, Daddy, I want you to put your hand. Don't take a long time because we don't have a long time. You pray for your wife. Pray for your son. Pray for your daughters. Amen. You might have grandchildren here. There, there, there may there be, be a boy or a girl here. It's not your blood family, but you're adopting them into your family right now. Amen. Single moms right now that aren't going to leave this service as a single mom, but they're going to be sisters. Amen. The people in this church family right now. Legitimate covenant family members. Oh, Jesus. Oh, God. Oh, God. I don't want to lose a one. I don't want to lose a one. Not a one. Not one more teenager. Not one more family. Not another divorce. (laughs) Oh, Jesus. Let the foundation of the Word of God be beneath our feet right now. Build a hedge of protection around this family right now as we submit ourselves to the canopy of submission. Oh, Lord. Lord. (laughs) Oh, Jesus. That's right, Daddy. Get anointed right now. I can't hear many daddies. Come on, lift up your voice, Daddy. Let your boy hear you pray. Let your girl hear you pray. When's the last time your wife really, really heard you pray? Really, really pray. I'm talking a real one. I'm talking about an anointed one right now. Your family's on the line, Daddy. (laughs) Tomorrow's on the line right now.
tell the truth. Whether it's bad or good, doesn't matter. Just tell the truth. Be honest. And he said, that's my boy there. That's my boy. How in the world and what kind of life did he live for the Lord to literally recommend Job to Satan? Have you considered my servant Job? He's perfect and upright in all of his ways. Wow. In Jesus' name. This is a heavy day. I don't want to end it heavy. I'm going to ask Draylon, we're going to sing a song of rejoicing and thanksgiving and worship. This, ladies and gentlemen, is what God calls a new year. January 1 means nothing to Jesus if there's no repentance there. If there, if there it means nothing to Him. But I'm telling you, the fourth month can become the first month. <laughs> If you're smart enough to realize the value of putting his blood on your life, dying out to your own will. Sing us something, boy. These kids are hungry. They're tired. They've had a long day. We're going to sing together and then we're going to go home.
promoters can't do this, ladies and gentlemen. Dodge and Chrysler can't do this. Ford will never be able to. Tesla and all the electronic geniuses, they're going to do this. Only God can make a year. This is a day the Lord has made. The Bible said His mercies are new every day. So what are you going to do with 23? What do you say we make this the greatest year of victory <laughs> and personal growth we've ever known? I want to give Satan, they used to say, do you, do you have a headache or do you have an excedrin headache? I'd like to give Satan an excedrin headache, a really bad one. Have you come to torment us before our time? Yep. Yep, we have. Yep, we have. It's been an honor to be in church and make this covenant with you today. Let's leave this place to serve him as new men and new women, new sons, new daughters, new marriages, new families, new relationships. I love you. God bless you. Amen. In Jesus' name. Go and sin no more.